And welcome to Season 2, Episode 41 of Logicast, the AWS News Podcast brought to you by Logicata. My name's Carl Robinson. I'm CEO and co-founder of Logicata. And I'm joined, as always, by my colleague, John Goodall. How are you doing today, John? I'm okay. I'm aware, though, that we haven't introduced me by my job title for a while now. Feel free. Maybe to, we should start uh, doing that. Feel free to tell the listeners your job title just to remind them. <laughs> so if you haven't listened to like the first episode ever, I'm lead cloud engineer at Logicata, but I like to call myself the lead cloud evangineer because I do all of this stuff as well as actual work. Not the engineer list. Yeah, that just sounds right. Evangineer sounds a bit slicker, I think. <laughs> Well, yeah, maybe we maybe we can let you change it to that in the future. Uh, but we're also joined today by fellow AWS community builder, Simon Salim. So how are you doing today, Simon? Yeah, I'm doing well. It's been like really chilly and cold here, but otherwise it's going well. Yeah, it's been super cold here as well, actually, although today it's warmed up a little bit and gone very wet, as it tends to do in the UK. So, uh, yeah, everything's very wet and damp. Uh, which makes You might see me reach cold. back and turn the halogen heater on if I get cold, but we'll see how we go. <laughs> Yeah, well, let's hope you don't burn the shed down because uh, we might have to restart the recording if you do. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> so, so tell us a bit about yourself. What do you do for a living? What's, what's your job title and uh, what do you do for a living? Uh, yeah, I'm working as a, a senior software engineer at a company named Mimecast. So they're uh, one of the market leader in uh, cybersecurity and email security solution. So I have been working with them for last uh, two and a half year and in my career, like I have been mostly a PHP developer, but after joining this company, nowadays I'm mostly working with Java. And uh, like from last four or five years, I'm very much like interested in cloud technologies. So in my current company, I also got the chance to work with AWS and so on. So that's how like I got into uh, AWS Community Builder program because I'm learning a lot about AWS services and I thought like it would be much easier if I get into the community, share my experiences with others and also get to know from others because AWS has a very big community and it's uh, kind of like uh, full of resources from where I can learn lots of things. Sounds good. And are you hands-on with AWS in your day-to-day -day work? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, like uh, after joining this company, the first project I have worked on, we were just started to like adopting cloud technology like AWS because ours is a very old company. Like they are in the business for last 20 years. So they have their own data centers for like compliance and other reasons. But for new services, we are now trying to deploy it in AWS because it's easier uh, like you don't have much overhead in managing the data centers and other things so the project i was working on i took the lead to like deploy it in aws so i used terraform to automate all the things and we used uh, aws uh, ecs fargate and a couple of other services so it was really a nice experience to like get my hands dirty on real things nice so uh, we, um, as you know, if you listen to the podcast, uh, we are here to talk about AWS news. And there has been 
an awful lot of that recently uh, because uh, last week, of course, was the annual running of the AWS reInvent conference. I think the 12th annual running of the AWS reInvent conference. And I think I read somewhere that there were 192 new service and feature announcements um, during the, the conference. Um, but uh, don't worry, listeners, uh, this is just going to be another half an hour episode and we're not going to take you through all 192 of those. Uh, <laughs> but we have selected uh, just five um, that we'd like to talk about um, and uh, five that we thought were quite interesting coming out of reInvent last week. So the first of those five, um, rather unusually, um, is an article about hardware rather than software. Yeah, uh, I so tried very hard to avoid talking about Amazon Q, so we don't talk about it at all in this episode. <laughs> But instead, you've picked on an Amazon Cube. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's not actually called, but uh, it is uh, it is cube shaped. Um, so Amazon have uh, repurposed some of their consumer hardware um, to work as a thin client with the Amazon Workspaces virtual desktop offering. Um, so not something that we talk about regularly on the podcast, but it did get a lot of airtime last week um, during reInvent. So why did you pick this one, John? Well, it's a funny one. I've worked with thin clients before. Obviously not this one because it's brand new, but Dell have one that they bought a company called Wise and then it was a Dell Wise thin client. And what that did was that connected you to a Citrix uh, remote desktop or Shitrix as we called it. Not bleeping that out. We're, we're going to hit the 18 plus rating because um, okay. Citrix is awful. It's terrible. But the thin clients kind of worked okay. Yeah, they the little Linux machine and it just connected off to a remote PC and it was, it was fine. This I picked on because, well, you don't hear lots of new announcements about thin clients anymore because the world kind of was client server for a while in that you had big mainframes um, and your little thin terminal. And then you had fat clients for a good long while, which is your kind of rich desktop applications and, and all the rest of it. And then we've gone back to thin clients, but we still have fat clients that we access our remote systems with. Because if you think about it, you could do anything you like in the cloud on basically a Raspberry Pi. And I know because I've done it right? But we still have these massive great MacBooks and what have you. So I thought I'd pick this one out because you don't hear of new ones very often. And the other thing is the Dell Wise ones, and it's the only one I'm familiar with, so that's what I'm going to use. I had it connected to a Citrix desktop, but I'm pretty sure it would have connected to any other remote desktop service. This one is obviously limited to Amazon Workspaces, which is rubbish, to be honest. <laughs> Workspaces is just rubbish. So I don't know. Like, workspaces is expensive. I don't know what the pricing is offhand of these devices, but one imagines they're not free. They're about two hundred and ninety-five dollars. I think I read somewhere. Yeah, in the article. So yeah, yeah, they're not. Yeah, they're very not free, and workspaces itself is expensive, and the latency is terrible. So I'm not sure who's buying this. Like I have not used uh, these devices. Like so far, I have only used Arduino or other Raspberry Pi kind of devices. But from the article, I can see like they have introduced a couple of new features. They're supporting like Workspaces Web and Amazon App Stream, couple of other things. But uh, I think from company perspective, it depends on the company, like how they want to use it. Maybe like for some companies, they want to control on the devices uh, their employees are using. Like I can say as a cyber, uh, like as I work for a cybersecurity company, we have lots of restrictions in our work machines. Like if I want to install a new software, I 
like need to ask the IT for permissions. And sometimes like new employees, they don't know the rules very well. So they install a software and sometimes if they get compromised, the company is in jeopardy. So I believe like in this kind of like situations, the company uh, wants to more control and they can then use these uh, devices for their employees in a specific segments because then they have the like full control over these uh, uh, workspaces for their employee because they allow whatever they want for the employees. The employees cannot do anything else like it's very restricted. So I believe in those cases it may work. But as you said, like it's quite expensive. Yeah, and I mean, all of all of what you said is true, but all of what you said is true of every other thin client device on on the planet, and you can do it with Windows machines anyway. Like I, I worked, said this in the preamble, I worked for a bank once, and because it was a regulatory environment, I was in regulatory IT, um, we couldn't just install anything. We couldn't install anything. We didn't have admin rights. If you wanted to install a new piece of software, you had to go and raise a support request. I think it was called a global service request or a GSR. I still remember that. That's quite sad. Um, you filled the form out. Your manager approved it or didn't or asked you why you needed it because it had a license cost. And then it would either install through their installer portal or um, someone from tech support would remote on and kind of sort that out for you. So, this device isn't bringing anything new to the table that doesn't kind of already exist. Because if you think about it, take it even further, you can do the same with Chromebooks. Schools have been doing this for a decade with Chromebooks, and they cost about this or less than this. And like, I don't, I don't, I don't know who's buying this. <laughs> no, no doubt someone will. Otherwise, they wouldn't have come out with the product. But I don't know who. Hmm. I think uh, you know there are some use cases in. Uh, it- in the article sort of uh, large enterprises with um contact centers um where, Healthcare you know, services and others. Yeah, yeah where the workload requirements are fairly simple uh, i think you know engineers hate workspaces because they don't have enough access to the uh, you know the operating system and so on and so forth but people who just need to use a, a browser-based application like amazon connect or something like that to uh, you know to operate a contact center could work well in that environment um and uh, you know they're claiming that the firmware is optimized for workspaces so maybe um you know in a side-by-side test with a chromebook or similar it's going to perform better or be easier to configure or whatever in those kind of remote environments where you've got non-technical users you just want to plug something in and work with it so um, yeah i mean the only thing i can yeah the only thing i can think is because again all of what you've just said is true of dell wises or any other thin client because i've I've been there and i've used them the only thing i can think is and we've said this with other aws services not amazon straight link is uh, vendor management because if they're already a vendor you don't want to have to go to dell and get them on the approved list and all the rest of it just spend all your money in one place that's kind of the only thing that really seems to stick for me and then as you say if they've optimized it to work with workspaces then perhaps it will work better than a raspberry pi or a chromebook or whatever yeah but uh yeah i can definitely see the use case for for using thin clients in those remote work scenarios where perhaps you don't want to send out an expensive laptop and not get it back um having been been on the receiving end of that myself in the past um <laughs> that's uh, not getting my equipment back not to keep yeah. the employer's equipment i've never done that of course um so uh, anyway um so yeah mixed opinions there on uh, the amazon thin clients generally not bad but it yeah yeah, yeah. 
it's the, like vendor locked kind of thing but i mm. believe it's uh, for amazon they can upsell to their existing customers because like the customers who are like already with amazon they would like try to stick with amazon and like buy something and then try to work with another vendor so it seems maybe sometimes time consuming or they want don't want to do that so they have maybe some existing market for it of course it could be that somebody just messed up the fire tv hardware order <laughs> and they've got millions of them sitting on a shelf somewhere that they need to get rid of so they've uh... some engineer got linux working on it and went, oh we sell this yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah who knows uh, anyway, let's move on uh, from the uh, the Amazon Cube Thin Client uh, into the world of step functions, uh, which is uh, more where we, uh, we're, we, we're normally uh, discussing matters. So um, last week, uh, AWS step functions um, announced support for HTTPS endpoints and a new test state API. Um, so got to admit i'm not an expert on step functions myself I think john you know more about it i know a little bit more about it after our recent aws brighton user group uh, where ben smith from aws talked us through some use cases for step functions um, but obviously now it can do more stuff so talk us through it so right step functions up until now um you could call them from the AWS cdk SDK, always mix them up, or from an endpoint, right? You could put API Gateway in front of it, you could call it. And it integrated with 100 and something, 200 and something AWS services, right? Not all of them on day one, but they gradually increased the integration. And what you saw most commonly was people hooking them up to lambdas. So you could orchestrate a sequence of lambdas to kind of do stuff, you know, get data from one place, fan out to process the data, that kind of thing. So you can just it over enormous great data sets quite quickly. That's great. We like that. We like that a lot. However, it was limited in that you had limited options for testing. You had step functions locals a thing. You could run it in the console, run it in a dev environment, um, wrap it around something else, wrap something else around it. So you check the inputs, the outputs, and all that kind of thing. But that was kind of your lot. And if you did find a failure halfway through, you had to start right the way from the beginning again. That was quite awkward. Also, it would only integrate with AWS services. Yes, that's quite powerful, and given that it would integrate with Lambda, Lambda can then integrate with anything else, um, but it was a limit, right? And it meant that you had to then have Lambdas and invocation costs and write more unit tests and kind of all the rest of it. Cool. What these two changes have done is kind of done away with those problems. Not entirely, but to a great extent. So the HTTPS endpoints means that you can basically just send, as I understand it, a curl from your step function to an endpoint. Brilliant. Thank Christ for that. It means that you don't have these kind of helper lambdas in the middle that just say, I have been called, I must get data, and then come back again. Right? This basically cuts out the need for a whole chunk of lambdas that you previously would have had to have written in AN language and go through your various review processes twice because you get your step function reviewed and your lambda reviewed. You kind of cut that half of that out. That's brilliant, especially if all you're doing is talking to a pretty simple endpoint and just saying, you know, a get request from here, give me a lot of data out of my ERP, for argument's sake. That's great because it cuts out a dirty great helper lambda, um, which if you were doing something kind of rather than just processing that data in, in said lambda, if you're doing something a bit more intelligent with it and using the power of step functions and putting directly in tables in Dynamo and all the rest of it, you can cut a lot of code out which we like. And that was a key thing from Ben's talk was cutting code out of the process. Brilliant. The second one is the test state API. Now, 
you might remember this, Carl, but the listeners obviously weren't there. And if you weren't, why weren't you on the stream? Um, <laughs> step functions are made up of states, right? And you pay for them depending on depending on the type. You pay for them based on number of transitions between states. The testing problem historically was that you had to start from the beginning and you had to restart from the beginning. Now, the week before reInvent, they fixed that by saying you could restart from the point at which it failed, redrive, as it was called. But you still had to run the whole step function if you wanted to test one state. That's problematic if it's a large or long-running function, um, and the thing you're trying to test is potentially after or in between a couple of big, long processes. So it's problematic. This API allows you to just test one state. So that's important, right? Because you think, well, you just test the Lambda that you're calling. You might not be calling a Lambda, but in that case, yeah, okay, you could, but the data looks a bit different. You've got to make sure you're crafting it properly. But you could not be calling a Lambda. You could be putting a message on a queue. You could be getting or putting into a Dynamo table. You could be doing 150-odd other things. So the ability to just call one state and say, here's my inputs, validate my outputs, is incredibly powerful because you're cutting out enormous chunks of process. Sounds good. You're a fan of step functions, Simon? Uh, like I have uh, went through like uh, personally, but I have not yet used those in production. But uh, I can see like one major thing that uh, like you mentioned that uh, they introduced test state API testing. So this is like, I think very important because as uh, John was mentioning, like if it fails, we have to restart it again. So it actually hampers uh, the developer experience because uh, it's making your testing longer. And sometimes if you have to do the things from scratch or restart it again, so it's actually wasting a lot of your time. And sometimes as a developer, we don't want to like spend our time on this. Like I run it and then I just like see it and wait for something to happen. But I believe this feature is now like making our life uh, like uh, easier because now actually i can test it faster that means like i can develop and deploy faster so i think th that's a very uh, interesting thing for me if i try this service later so i would definitely see how that uh, improves my development life cycle and the https endpoint thing i think it's also a, like a major uh life-changing feature kind of thing because uh, I can now communicate with the outside world and any kind of services now. Because previously, maybe I would need an extra layer or write code on my own to communicate with some other services. But now, actually, I can do it without any extra hassle. For example, like I'm developing an application and I need to uh, communicate with Stripe for payment or invoice processing. Now I can do it right away without like uh, writing or managing extra lambdas. It's just would be a kind of like REST API call. So that I would say like these two features have been really great addition to step functions. Nice. Well, a big thumbs up for step functions, new features. I'd do that, but I've turned it off because it was annoying me. <laughs> oh, I've still got mine on, I think. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> yeah, it's a new uh, default feature in the Apple webcam. Um, 
<laughs> which I really should turn off because uh, it's fine on the podcast, but when that happens in customer meetings, it's a little bit unprofessional. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, sorry if you're listening. Um, you'll have to go and watch the YouTube stream to uh, see what just happened. Uh, anyway, let's move on to the third article for this week. And uh, even I got excited about this one. Um, so uh, this is an article uh, about a new automatic restore testing and validation feature now available in AWS Backup. Um, and as we all know, uh, backups are very important, but backups that actually work are even more important. Um, and uh, AWS have introduced a new automated way of testing the backups that you've made uh, for most of the services that you're going to want to back up. So uh, EBS, um, EC2, RDS, Aurora, EFS, DocumentDB, etc. So most of the places with MongoDB compatibility. Get yeah, get the name uh, right. Get, get that all <laughs> in. Yeah. <laughs> um, so most of the places that you're going to be storing data that you want to back up, uh, you can now run automated backup um, restore tests. So uh, Sumon, let, you can go first this time. What do you think about this one? Uh, I'm really excited and would love this service because like there has been situation before that uh, I have the backup files. I know like it's uh, all right, I'm taking the backups, but it happened that when I tried to restore this, I saw like the backup file was uh, like uh, corrupted or sometimes it was not like restored the way I would want. So I believe like it's a very useful feature for things like that that now I can test and make sure that my uh, backup or snapshot is like uh, exactly the way I would want it to be. And it would make like things uh, uh, consistent and give me more confidence that, okay, I know like the backups that been there, it will or surely gonna work. Yeah, and I think one of the things I liked about it was in addition to the fact that it's going to work, uh, it gives you some data around the RPO as well. So you can you actually know how long it's going to take. Um, so if you're running these regularly, not only are you going to That's have... That's RTO. Uh, <laughs> RTO, RP sorry, yeah. 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 yeah, recovery time objective, yeah. Um, so uh, it gives you data around the recovery time objective um, so that you know not only is my backup going to work, uh, but how long it's actually going to take to restore, um, which is uh, very useful. John, the only thing um, it's important to to clarify those two points, right? Recovery point is um, how old your data is. Your recovery time is how long it takes you to get it back again. Um, just for those listeners that aren't aware, the only thing I couldn't see in this, and we got quite excited about this internally because one of the services we offer is we automate your backups and validate that they are taking. We had this enormous great discussion about how the hell are we going to validate that they're actually working. And I was thinking, well, you could build it in a step function, but then you've got to restore it and you've got to leave it up for a while and you've got to clear the resources off afterwards and all the rest of it. So we got quite excited about this and I'm probably going to implement this in, in one of our products. However, and maybe I just missed it, but I couldn't see that the backup restore schedule, whatever it's called, is actually cleaning up after itself. So it could be, you know, testing your restores once a week, and then you've just got this ever-growing pile of restored backups that you're paying to run resources from. Maybe I missed it. I hope I missed it. Or mm. maybe I it's just not as well because that would be uh, that would not be painful. <laughs> yeah, clean up after itself. So uh, yeah. I think there should be like features to like maybe set a retention period or something like that so that it cleans up like automatically but not sure yeah i would think so but like i say i didn't i didn't see it uh -huh. okay yeah maybe it requires a, a more in-depth look but oh uh, no, there it is yeah retention period before cleanup 
Yeah. Delete immediately or retain for a specific number of hours. So yeah, it can be done. Phew. It's just it wasn't written in the text and I was skimming the text. It was in one of the screenshots with the right. with the yeah. arty farty kind of we've torn this out of a newspaper sort of look. And every time I see them, my brain just goes, uh <laughs> I quite like them, actually. I, don't, I, I want the tool that does that. There must be a tool that does that automatically with AI, I'm sure. But we're not talking about AI this week, but I had to mention it at least once. So uh, <laughs> It's been in every episode for about five weeks now. Yeah, this is the only episode where there is no AI, but I just had to say AI anyway. <laughs> um, but uh, anyway, m- moving on then. Well, we, we love the backup, the automated backup restore testing, uh, and we can see that uh, we actually have a use case for that in our business mm. as well with our, with our managed services customers. So. And to be honest, everyone that's running backups in AWS Backup should do this. Because as, as Sumon said, and as everyone that works in tech knows and probably has a horror story for, your backups are only as recent as the last one you've tested. Yep. <laughs> there is a cost associated with doing it, of course, um, but uh, check the pricing page for that. I think it's something like a dollar fifty per test plus the storage that you need to, to do it. Something. And like the that. thing that's running after you is created, one assumes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyway, let's move on to the uh, fourth article this week. Uh, and this is... Uh, more serverless stuff. Um, so uh, this one is uh, a new uh, Elasticash serverless service for Redis and Memcached, which was announced last week. Um, so uh, now you can configure your Redis and Memcached caches without having to worry about the size of your instances and the number of instances in the cluster. So is this a good thing, guys? It's not serverless. It's called serverless. It's not serverless. <laughs> Most things that are serverless are not serverless. <laughs> I get really uppity about this, and, and I said it in the talk that I gave a little while ago, but I get really uppity about this. You have to pay for the cluster to exist on a per-hour basis. That's not serverless. The whole tenet of serverless is scale to zero. That's a core feature, as far as I'm concerned. That's a core feature, right? If it doesn't scale to zero, it isn't serverless. It's a managed service. So that bomb thrown out there apart from that no complaints it's kind of expensive though is it yeah yeah i've seen some sort of noise from serverless heroes and things saying it, it, it's a bit pricey it's a bit spendy mm-hmm. maybe aimed yeah. at the higher end of the market um yeah maybe i think what they're doing and there's definitely again use cases within kind of some of our customer base for this is what they're doing is they're charging you for taking away all the nasty rubbish i think and just kind of baking that into the um hourly charging model because you can skin through all the performance and all the rest of it that's not that interesting the things to know at the bottom upgrading engine versions historically that would require either a really performant cluster that you've got lots of reader and writer nodes and you kind of bring them down one at a time and it takes ages and you've got this really big cluster or if you've got a little cluster you have to have downtime you don't need downtime anymore it just deals with it because it will just handle it for you brilliant that's worth paying for in and of its own right and then it talks about performance and security and they're all important and stuff but it's the upgrades by itself and the patching by itself that is worth paying for, even if this is called serverless but isn't serverless. It's worth paying for just for that, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Well, like think, uh, in our company, we use uh, Redis a lot. And I can say like the 
as you uh, john was mentioning like the major interesting feature for me would be that i don't have to like uh, uh, think about uh, how or when to upgrade or things because like uh, we don't know like there could be data and during upgrade or patches if i messed up something it could like uh, take down our applications so here i don't have to think about these things so that is uh, really good because uh, in memory caches are really sensitive there's always data and if something goes <laughs> like a bad there our whole application gets stuck and we have faced this uh, kind of situation before with uh, act uh, like RabbitMQ, then we move to managed services. So I can surely say like uh, there would be cases where these services would be like lifesaver, but uh, we have to uh, take care of the pricing calculation because if uh, it's not like suitable for me and I start using it, I can uh, like I start spending money, which I should not do. Because mm. of the auto scaling aspect, you mean? Uh, auto scaling and also it could be like it uh, like managing our own instances would be a bit cheaper serverless pricing is always high so if uh, it's there i'm paying the price but it's not actually uh like beneficiary for me my system is not uh, like needing the auto scaling and other features that much then i'm just paying the prices and not getting the benefits out of it so, uh, it's an yeah, interesting like, point. It is. But engineers, and you've done exactly the same thing, always think their time doesn't cost anything. Your engineers are your most expensive resource. So definitely there's a pricing element. And I said it's a bit spendy. And there's some commercial offerings that aren't on AWS that are kind of cheaper. But your engineers are always largely more expensive than your infrastructure. And if it's not, then you need to do some work on your infrastructure to make it cheaper, to be really honest. Um the engineer time spent maintaining your AWS Elasticash setup might be, not saying it is, might be more than the increase in just going serverless. So it's yeah. it's a balance. Balance. Yeah, yeah. It depends on the like uh, company how they are using it or use cases. So they have to like do a te feasibility test or kind of thing and decide whatever suits best. Cool. So we like it, but it's a bit pricey. Yeah, bit spendy. Yeah. So that's a nice segue into our final article this week, then about cost optimization. And uh, I did wonder if you chose this one, John, because you modelled for the uh, for the photo. Um, that's just rude. That's just rude. Isn't, isn't that your? Um, that's the same colour as your um, your t-shirt from the uh, the one with the uh, floppy disk on it. Uh, <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Yeah, so I, I thought yes, it was a T-shirt. Yeah. That's just rude, frankly. <laughs> that's just rude. Only if I say that you you modelled for that photo in the past and you couldn't reproduce that now since you've been going to the gym, obviously. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, I'm I should have to, to list some discs that weigh as much as you do and, and then we'll trying, chat. Trying to turn it around here and claw myself out of the hole I've just dug for myself. Anyway, uh, we're not here to insult John. We're here to talk about AWS. <laughs> and uh, the, the, there was an announcement last week um, about some new features um, for Compute Optimizer. Uh, and some new features in the cost optimization hub. So I think the article talks about compute optimizer first. So is it better now than it used to be? 
Um, I don't really want to talk about computer optimizer because it's a bit boring. It's, hopefully it's a bit better. But frankly, the only thing I wanted to pick on from this, and I'm quoting Corey Quinn almost verbatim, but they fixed the biggest problem with the cost opt with the cost explorer thing is that you go into the billing console and previously you clicked on cost explorer and it opened in a new tab for no good reason. And now it doesn't. <laughs> that's it. That's all I wanted to talk about. That's all that's it. <laughs> Well, I thought there was some nice improvements to uh, Compute Optimizer. Um, whether it's boring or not is uh, down to whether or not you need it, I suppose. But uh, they've uh, more than doubled the look-back period to make it more useful because uh, previously it would only look back over a couple of weeks and uh, a, custom, a couple of weeks is not really a good, necessarily a very good sample um, mm. to look at um, for optimizing your compute workloads because you could miss some big kind of monthly reporting peaks out of that, for example. Um, so, uh, yeah, the look back period having increased to, I think it was yep. 32 days, wasn't it, from 14? Um, is, yep, uh, is nice. Yeah, not Yeah, yeah. Is this something you guys have been using, Suma? Uh, like, as an engineer, I don't have the like, chance to use it because most of the cases we only get access to the resources that we need for the applications. It's more kind of like whoever into the DevOps or NetOps team, they get to manage these things. But sometimes I do like try out with AWS services, have some paid projects in AWS. So I use those tools, but I don't have to use those tools extens uh, extensively most of the time because that's maybe uh, like more where infrastructure guys uh, looks at. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Okay, well, it's probably quite fortuitous that we don't have a lot to say about this last article because we have reached the end of our time for this week. Um, so uh, thank you very much, Suman, for your insights and for joining us as a, as a guest on the Logicast podcast. And uh, thank you, John, as always, uh, for your insights into this week's AWS news. That was season two, episode 41 of Logicast. Thank you uh, for listening, uh, if you are indeed still listening. Uh, and if you enjoyed it, don't forget to share it, tell your friends that they can download the Logicast podcast from wherever they download their podcasts, or you can catch us on YouTube. So uh, thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with a, another episode for you. We'll see you again next time. Cheers. <laughs>